0: Um, Don Herbert worked at a radio station in Chicago where he acted in children's programs, um, like a documentary health series called It's Your Life. What did you just say? Don
1: it sounded like you said a documentary hell series.
0: No, health. 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 Like healthy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Again,
1: come again. Hi, welcome to Halfway History, I'm Jonathan,
0: and I'm Kylie,
1: and this is a podcast where we talk about this upcoming week, but a long time ago,
0: a really long, well actually no, not this week, I'm, I'm not super long this week,
1: I'm not super long ago this week either
0: all right nice nope, keeping
1: nope. it
0: in the last decade no oh oh century <laughs>
1: yeah what are you saying
0: clearly i can't <laughs> tell i'm missing the zero somewhere
1: <laughs> decade is actually the only thing that we're not doing yes
0: yeah. <laughs> well, well you tried it's another early morning recording i'm blaming it on that
1: Yep. <laughs> At this point, we've done more early mornings than we have late nights, but the late nights still seem to feel better.
0: Yeah, it's clearly, morning is not my time to shine.
1: All right, mm-hmm. so when is yours?
0: 1917. Oh, right, you beat me. That seems to happen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, so we are looking at July 10th of 1917, which is the birthday of Don Herbert. Do you know who Don Herbert is?
1: No, not at all.
0: He was more popularly known as the Mr. Wizard.
1: Still not ringing a bell.
0: He is the 50s and 60s version of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Oh, neat. I saw that listed as one of the, like, on the, you know, website that we use to try and find some interesting facts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, ooh, Bill Nye, but old.
1: Uh, Bill Nye, sorry, but you're getting old there too, buddy.
0: Yeah, no, but uh, Bill Nye actually um, counts Mister Wizard among one of his like in- inspirations, like one of the people who got him interested in doing what he does. Very cool. Yeah. Um. So Don Herbert was born in Waconia, Minnesota. Um. He was the creator and host of Watch Mister Wizard, which aired from 1951 to 1965, um, and then had a really short. Second Life in 1971-72, <laughs> um, as well as Mr. Wizard's World, which ran from 1983 to 1990. Um, and they were both educational television programs for children devoted to science and technology. Um, and he also made a lot of like short videos and short films, um, and published several several popular children's science books. Um, and like I said earlier, he is the early Bill Guy. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, which... Considering how much of an inspiration Bill Nye was to me as a kid, even though I didn't end up going into science and stuff, pretty sure Bill Nye was the only reason I didn't fail them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was pretty excited when I found this. Um, so his early interests were in English, general science, and drama. And in 1940, he acted opposite Nancy Davis, who would become Nancy Reagan, at the Coach House Summer Theater, which huh. I was like, oh, look at that. <laughs> um but his career as an actor was interrupted by World War II, um, when he enlisted in the U.S. Army as a private. Um, he later joined the Air Force and became a B-24 bomber pilot who flew 56 combat missions from Italy. When he was discharged in 1945, he was a captain and had earned the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Air Medal with three oak leaf clusters. I don't know what that means. I don't speak military. I should have looked it up.
1: <laughs> I'm trying to remember.
0: <laughs> I think each oak leaf stands for a specific, like, Honor.
1: Yeah, for some reason, I mean, this is com- probably completely wrong, but I, I thought, oh no, it's three stars is like a general rank, three oak leaves. I, I guess it's something else.
0: Okay, so the oak leaf clusters um, indicate distinguished action or a subsequent award of the same decoration. Okay. So you get a cluster if you get the same award again. You don't okay. get a second the whole thing.
1: There you go. Hmm,
0: interesting. Okay. After the war, um, Don Herbert worked at a radio station in Chicago. Where he acted in children's programs, um, like a documentary health series called It's Your Life. What did you just say?
1: It Doc- sounded like you said a documentary hell series.
0: No, health. 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 Like healthy. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no mocking my list. <laughs> on. Um it I didn't really it,
1: think you said hell. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's a
0: hell series called It's Your Life. It sounds about right, right? Yeah, yeah. I was concerned. <laughs> it was during this time that um he formula he came up with the idea for Mr. Wizard and a general science um and a general science science experiment show that he um that used the new medium of television because television was becoming like really popular. Yeah. His idea was accepted by Chicago's NBC station WNBQ, and the series titled Watch Mr. Wizard premiered on March 3rd, 1951. And it was aimed at children between the ages of 8 and 13, um, and it was a weekly half-hour live television show, so it was filmed live. Well, not live, live
1: Filmed in front of a live studio audience. That's the word
0: I'm looking for. Yep. <clears throat> that featured uh, Herbert as Mr. Wizard, and either a boy or a girl with um, whom Herbert performed his interesting science experiments. The experiments many of which seemed impossible at first glance were usually simple enough to be recreated by viewers such as teaching kids why cake rises, how to cook a hot dog by electrocuting it, and showing how centrifugal force worked by using a bucket of water. There you go. Yeah, so nice fairly simple things that could be recreated by kids with their parents or kids or science teachers or you know whatever. Um but so but he used like everyday items he didn't have like fancy schmancy special lab equipment it was pretty much things that you could find in your house or like at the hardware store huh which is what made it um, pretty interesting for kids because they could do it at home which i thought was nice
1: did he say don't try this at home at any point
0: (laughs) i think there was a warning at the beginning i watched a couple of um like clips from episodes and they all had like a do not attempt this at home make sure there's like a parent figure or a teacher Okay, so attempt like that. at yeah. home
1: with supervision.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. It was a, do not do this alone. Because that,
1: <laughs> that's real mean to be like, look, you can do all of this by yourself. And then <laughs> hey, we have all of the tools to do these experiments. Don't do them.
0: No, it was very much aimed, it was very much don't do it by yourself. I would 100% do have done them Yes, all. you would have. I know you would have. You're a problem child. No. <laughs> um... So he worked in, um, like, a his shirt instead of a lab coat, like a lot of contemporary, um, TV scientists. There were a couple of other shows around at the time, but a lot of them were much more, um, esoteric's not the word, but much more, like, high minded and they weren't aimed at children. Mm-hmm. Um, so he stood out by the fact that he didn't wear, a, like, a lab coat. He didn't look, he kind of looked like Mr. Rogers, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he worked on his, um, a TV laboratory set, but he called it his garage, which, again, was more welcoming, more homey, and made you feel like you weren't in, you know, some scary laboratory with this dude in the lab coat, because you weren't. Yeah,
1: you're just with uh, this old dude in his garage.
0: <laughs> There's nothing creepy about that. <laughs> in front of a ton of children. Um, so he aroused the curiosity of children in an informal way that That was turned...
1: a really unfortunate word choice for our accidental little joke right there. He aroused.
0: <laughs> oh, stop it. You... You creep. He piqued the curiosity okay. of children in an informal way that turned something sometimes arcane scientific concepts into fun. And his homework was the use of common objects to illustrate scientific principles. He cut out sections of paper, to, um, paper plates to illustrate an optical illusion. He ran smoke through a soda straw to make air currents visible and shined a flashlight to represent the strength of radiation. Cool. Yeah. Um, The show was really successful, with 547 live episodes created before it was cancelled in 1965. It also won a Peabody Award in 1953, and three Thomas Alva Edison National Mass Media Awards. Very cool. I yeah, it's like, that's pretty neat. Especially for, like, a show that's aimed at children. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, at its peak, Watch Mr. Wizard drew about 800,000 viewers per episode. But it had an even wider impact. Um, by 1956, over 5,000 Mr. Wizard science clubs had been established, with the total membership over 100,000 kids. Oh. Yeah, so really, you know, getting kids involved in science and, like, experimentation and stuff. Uh, the teachers incorporated the program themes into classrooms, so, like, they became part of lesson plans and stuff, and a lot of his experiments were incorporated into, like, the planned curriculum for schools all over. Um I lost my place. They also had mr Wizard's science kits um books and other product tie-ins filled with um f- that filled the holiday gift lists of countless children, so even kids were asking for science stuff for Christmas, which I was like that would not have been me that would have been me a hundred percent I'm like if you were like if you were a child in the fifties and sixties, you a hundred percent would have been these kids that would have like done anything to get on the show yes like you would have been like pick me choose me yep. <laughs> it has to be me yep. <laughs> i would have been like i'm gonna go play outside somewhere else without you guys <clears throat> um or play dress up with the dolls one or the other um so so he and his wife um even developed a traveling assembly program that featured young performers teaching students about science and it's estimated that that show was presented at about one point to about 1.2 million students every year so it just was like this, not them, but like people that they like trained or taught or like did whatever with that traveled around doing these little like mini show performances and stuff live. Yeah. For like kids in schools and stuff. Um, I was that, I'm like I'm a little jealous about that one, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> my, my middle school had, um, diversity week where we had people like different cultural perform kind of things. Um, And, like, so you would learn about a different culture for a whole week, and then, like, you'd learn some aspect of that culture, and you'd do it for all of the parents, like, at the end of the week. It was a very strange kind of... I learned a lot of weird dances and drums that, like, I don't remember. Yeah. But I'm like, I feel like this could... It was a very interesting way. It was a very hands-on way to learn about other other cultures. It was interesting.
1: See, I was about to say that we did something the same... But then I remembered, no, we just learned all of the Portuguese things because of how <laughs> densely packed population the the Portuguese population is in my hometown.
0: Fair enough, yep. fair enough, I don't my ho- mm. I don't think my hometown has any significant population.
1: You can just cut it right there.
0: Hey, <laughs> <laughs> Your hometown does not have very much
1: significant population.
0: I mean you're not wrong. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, like I said before, it, um, briefly got a revival in 1971 and 72, and it just aired as Mr. Wizard, and it was produced in, um, it was produced by, Can- in Canada, but, and was, um, aired on NBC and CBC television. So I had a real brief revival. Um, in the 1950s, he also, uh, Herbert also appeared on the General Electric Theater as the General Electric Progress Reporter, and when introduced spokesman Ronald Reagan um, to his, and his family to the viewing audience. And then in some episodes, he would appear alongside Reagan and demonstrate to the audience how General Electric was helping people to live better electrically. Hmm. So, like, a spokesman for General Electric, which I thought was really kind of funny. Yeah. Um, you we know, don't, to my knowledge, there's nothing like that now, but I could be wrong. I don't watch a lot of, like, live TV these days, it's a lot of Netflix.
1: Yeah, I I don't think that uh, in-programming ads happen a lot these days. Yeah,
0: yeah. So after Watch Mr. Wizard was canceled in 1965, Herbert went on to produce eight films in a series titled Experiment, the Story of a Scientific Search, and these aired on public television in 1966. He also produced the Science 20 series, which were 20-minute films of experiments that were designed for classroom use, and a student would record and analyze data based on the film. Um, so, it would help you with your science experiment, especially if you couldn't actually perform it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, um, in 1977, he began producing a series of How About how about episodes about scientific topics, and they were 90-second films that could be used in news programs. And by 1986, he had produced 536 of these films. Yeah. So, that's a lot of them. That's a lot. Yeah. He also opened a Mr. Wizard Science Center in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Oh. It's not there anymore. But I was like, hey, that's near us. Yeah, and then that's I not thought it's not there anymore. And I was like, gosh darn it. <laughs> I was like, I so would have gone. Yeah, when, <laughs> like, when, right now. when was his
1: heyday? You said in the 60s 50s or 50s? And 60s, yeah. yeah, I don't think that's still around.
0: Well, who knows? I was hopeful. In uh, 1983, he developed Mr. Wizard's World, which was a faster paced version of his show that aired three times a week on the cable channel Nickelodeon. Oh. Yeah. Not the Nickelodeon I remember watching, but possible.
1: Early Nickelodeon.
0: Yeah, very early Nickelodeon. Um It ran until 1990, and reruns were shown until 2000, so it's very possible that we could have watched it yeah. at some point in time and, like, just not remember it. Because, like, I vaguely recall, like, I remember Bill Nye shows, but I, it's very possible that my childlike mind could not remember, differentiate between the different kind of science experiment shows. Maybe. Because <laughs> I watched a lot of Nickelodeon when I was younger. So I feel like I should, and I imagine something titled Mr. Wizard's World would have been, Ooh, I want to watch that. It has a wizard. <laughs> right.
1: No, you probably did that and then got disappointed that it, it wasn't, wasn't fancy
0: magic.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah, some people probably. call it that, call science magic.
0: It's m- magic of the earth. It's natural magic
1: okay that <laughs> was more going for uh, thor's line is that magic oh, yeah. is just science you don't understand yet
0: yeah that's <laughs> good uh okay so he was a fairly frequent guest on hollywood squares during the 1986 season he uh, probably would have been a pretty safe contestant i think cuz like hollywood squares was like they would have to answer a question and if they didn't know they had to bluff kind of thing yeah like they had to make it up Yep. so i'm like i feel like he would have been a pretty one to trust probably knew what he was doing, just because, like, he has a pretty wide range of background considering he studied English science and drama. Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like that would have been a pretty, he would have been a pretty safe one to go with. <laughs>
1: yeah, covers a good, good span of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, in
0: 1994, he developed another new series of 15-minute spots called Teacher to Teacher with Mr. Wizard. Um, they highlighted individual elementary science teachers in their projects. And the series was sponsored by the National Science Foundation and was shown on Nickelodeon also. Cool. So that's like a nice little highlight, some of the teachers that you probably helped inspire it, like as children at this point. Yeah. If they watched a show in the 50s and 60s and in the 90s, their, their teachers. Yeah, I bet they watched, I bet a lot of them were like, oh my gosh, you were my childhood idol or something yeah, like that. Yeah, definitely. I wonder how much like fangirling went on in those shows. <laughs> um, so something really entertaining that I found out is that... Um, Don Herbert and Bill Murray were the first guests on The Late Night with David Letterman when it premiered in 1982. Really? Yeah. So Bill Murray and Mr. Wizard were the very first guests ever on David Letterman. That's really cool. Yeah, I was like, what the heck? (laughs) Because, like, it's also, like, past his heyday, essentially. So, like, it's really interesting that uh, there's a caterpillar on our wall.
1: Oh, how you doing, little buddy?
0: We're gonna just have to, like, uh, watch now, him. Let's, uh, get you um, out of here. Yeah, <laughs> preferably not in our house. Thanks. Right, quick, uh... <laughs> that's not
1: a caterpillar, that's a millipede.
0: Ooh! Come on, little millipede. Nope, nope. Kill it. No. He's fine. I, I don't like it. I'll get him outside. I don't drop it on me. For anyone listening to my sound effects, Jonathan just literally put it under a piece of paper and then dragged the peep- piece of paper over my head. <laughs> so, mild fear and paranoia here And now Bilbo's going to investigate Come on, Bilbo Okay The bug he has been removed
1: He has been put
0: outside
1: where he can munch on leaves
0: Okay, good I prefer him out there to in here
1: And Bilbo had to come with
0: Yes, he did Um. Okay, so back to Don Herbert And the late night with David Letterman Actually, we're moving on from that Um, in 1993, the children's science show Beekman's World, Beekman, Beekman. Beekman? Beekman's World. I don't think I ever watched it. I know
1: Beekman's World. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Okay. I don't think I ever watched it, um, because I just had trouble pronouncing it, so, good for me. Um, it, uh, an episode in 1993 paid homage to Herbert, jeez, by naming its two penguin puppet characters, Don and Herb. Oh, okay. I do not know the significance of these characters because I've never watched it. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering if you would. Oh, buddy. Oh, jump. Jump. Uh, so Don Herbert was definitely a copious note taker um, and probably every archivist's dream. He took notes on every experiment and never threw them out. Nice. Um, by the end of his career, he had at least 18 filing cabinets full of notes. And my little comment on here is, sounds like me with all my history course notes.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Sounds like you with all the notes for this show.
0: Hey, now, I, yes, I go through and pick out a bunch of things that I think look interesting and then go back and pick out my full topics. I end up with, like, four pages of possible topics for every week. (laughs) For reference,
1: I end up with, like, maybe three or four interesting things per day before I move
0: on. I like to be thorough. Yep. I am a historian most of the time. Um, so Herbert told the voice of America's our world program in 2006. And this is a quote. If you use scientific equipment, that's strange to a child, it's not going to help him or her understand. So we used everyday equipment. Um, I think this is like one of the few interviews he like gave. Um, he also died in 2007. So this was right before his death. Um, Herbert, like any good scientist, learned from his mistakes and demonstrated that it was was okay to mess up as long as you learned something. Um, And another quote is, once I was uh, supposed to pour two colorless fluids into a glass, and by the count of five, the fluid was supposed to turn black. It was a complicated experiment in which many factors like temperature and acidity had to be just right for the fluid to to change color. Well, I think I counted to 20 before it changed, but even when things went wrong, we would always explain why. Yeah. So that was definitely something that, like, he valued, um, was sometimes you make mistakes, you just have to understand why, and, like, that way you've learned something. Right. Which is... Um, it's important. Really nice, yeah. I definitely in like science and stuff, because I feel like science is definitely something where you fail more often than you succeed, but you have to understand why you failed, and you have to figure out where to go from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really cliche, but it's like, you know, it took a thousand tries to make the light bulb yeah but only one of them worked yeah it doesn't matter we all have light bulbs now who cares about the other 9999 tries yeah
0: um so he died in 2007 um and bill nye wrote in his obituary if any of you reading now have been surprised and happy to learn a few things about science watching bill nye the science guy keep in mind that it all started with don herbert Herbert's techniques and performances helped create the United States' first generation of homegrown rocket scientists, just in time to respond to Sputnik. He sent us to the moon, and he changed the world. Very nice. And I was like, that was a really nice tribute from someone that, like, nowadays we hold in very high regard. Right. Because, you know, Bill Nye was a really big influence on a lot of us. Yep. Um, so another person who was inspired by Herbert was Steve Spangler. Um, who is the founder of Steve Spangler Science and its wholesale division, Be Amazing Toys. He's also the person who holds, like, the record for the biggest Mentos and um, Pepsi or Diet Coke. What is it that you put the Mentos Di- in? Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Yeah. Like, he holds the records for the tallest... Geyser. Geyser, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he, like, he has a, he also um, had a, seg- like, a science segment, and he has a lot of, like, videos and stuff now, I think, also, that are, like, science for kids related. So he's like an, another kind of Bill Nye-esque person. Right. Um, he said he was inspired by Mr. Wizard and said that um, when he was asked to host a science segment in News for Kids in 1991, which is where he kind of got his television start, Yep. Um, he immediately sought out Herbert for advice. And Herbert's advice to him was to not let them put him in a lab coat, to be himself, and that if he's excited, the kids will be excited. And yeah. I was like, that's, you know, really good. That's a really good, like, way to live is that, like, be yourself. Don't be, don't try to be pretentious, don't try to be something you're not, and be excited. Yeah. Like, be happy.
1: Good advice for all life, not just being on TV (laughs) science
0: programs. Yeah. I, the couple of, like, the couple of segments that I watched, he really reminded me of, like, a cross between, like, Bill Nye and, like, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Like, he had that kind of, like, like, Bill Nye's all excited and, like, you know, very energetic, Mm -hmm. and, like, Herbert definitely had more of a kind of, like, encouraging warm kind of tone to him where he was like um and it was i mean he interacted directly with kids too because like there was always a child assistant right so like it was a really interesting kind of blend of those two like tv personalities that i'm familiar with um that i'm like i really kind of wish i had been like it had been on when i was a kid too because i think that would have been more up my alley right Right. um in terms of like what i like
1: than very uh uh, what is it? Gung ho and. Yeah, g- Gung ho Bill Nye. <laughs> yeah. Very extroverted.
0: Yes, because yeah. I am not extroverted at all. <laughs> um, hence why we're doing a podcast where no one can see me. Yes. Um, so during the 60s and 70s, about half the applicants to Rockefeller University in New York, where students work towards doctorates in science and medicine, cited Mr. Wizard when asked how they first became interested in science. That's a pretty impressive legacy. Yeah. Um, additionally, you'll be interested in this one. Jamie Heineman Hy- and Adam Savage, um, who are, who were, are the, the, were, like, the stars yeah. of Mythbusters, um, have been described as being reverent of Herbert's work as Mr. Wizard. And five months after his death, Myth- Mythbusters aired a two hour episode titled, Sup- uh, Special Super-Sized Myths That Was Dedicated to Mr. Wizard. Very cool. I was like, that's super sweet. Um, so there's a lot of the experience that you can, um, experiments and like clips of the show that you can find on YouTube. Um, and some of the seasons are still available for purchase. There's, um, they still maintain his website, which is www.mrwizardstudios.com. And you can order DVDs of both Watch Mr. Wizard and Mr. Wizard's World, um, as well as some of the like short films and like the books. So like you can still get them. A- bunch of his stuff which I'm like I might just do that maybe we'll (laughs) we'll do that Um, so last thing is that in 2015 a large collection of his documents and photos were donated to the Archive Center at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History cool and a small selection of the material was on display for several months uh, but they're now available to see by appointment yep Um, so one of the things that the archivist noted in a Smithsonian article that I read were that Herbert's notes reveal an educator who is particular about science but also about spectacle. He operated at a time when television had enabled more visual storytelling, and most kids' programming was still cartoons. His importance was to make science comfortable for children. Additionally, according to the um, ad- according to the archivists at the Smithsonian, his collection is overflowing with fan mail, uh, mainly from children who watch the show or from like extremely appreciative parents, mm-hmm. um, confirming his very special resonance with his view. Very cool. Yeah, I would like he you know, like a fun cross between Mister Rogers and, and that also no I. means he kept it all. Yeah, yeah. which I freaking love. Yep. That is an archivist paradise because that way you know you can really look at the everything as a whole to really see like you're not sitting there wondering hmm I wonder what important piece of information isn't in here yeah, I wonder what's
1: redacted like name. what got lost yeah. what got
0: redacted what got you know destroyed or thrown away before that could have been really exciting like you never know and there's always a sense of like you're missing something yeah like when you go when you archive and stuff stuff it was pretty cool
1: so if any of you listeners ever wrote a letter to uh mr wizard rest assured it's probably in storage
0: it's probably there somewhere yep um yeah i was cool cool. (laughs) part of me was like i wonder if we could figure out how to do a science experiment and then i was like no one can see us yeah
1: seeing (laughs) is kind of necessary uh, I mean, not really. You're supposed to write all of your test procedures and stuff so that anyone reading it can be able to do it. And
0: yeah, but I mean, I feel like writing it wouldn't be as reading out loud notes from an experiment would be super boring.
1: Yeah, <laughs> might be fun hearing our reactions with no context. Level. Oh my god! Like, oh! Oh,
0: why is that red? It's not supposed to be red.
1: <laughs> it won't
0: stop. It won't Help! stop. <laughs> we turn uh, into a,
1: a horror podcast. Oh gosh. <laughs> Day 37. We're still hiding from the foam we created in episode 32.
0: (laughs) If we were on episode 37, that would be a super, super duper long time hiding from that foam.
1: Yep. Yep. All right. Anyway, so my topic, um, we're going to start our story off in 1983. A Mr. J. Mann, a New York carpenter, sits alone in his apartment contemplating the events that conspired just a few short years ago in his life. Back then, he had a great job, a great girlfriend, and a great pet. The American dream was just short of a white picket fence. Unfortunately for him, he chose the wrong pet. Laws uh, weren't quite strict back then, oh so no. he did, it was easier to get a hold of exotic pets, and he got, uh, he got himself an ape, which he named oh, Kong.
0: Oh no. Pre-
1: presumably after the Universal Pictures King Kong.
0: He should have known! <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, so, Personally, as someone who has worked as an exotic animal handler, I see where this is going because, you know, I there's all these animals that I would have loved to keep and, like, I worked with hands-on and they're all very friendly. But you always have to remember, at the end of the day, they're still a wild animal.
0: If you ever get an exotic pet license, though, I want a red panda. I know you do. <laughs> More than anything in this life, I want a red panda.
1: Yep. <laughs> the amount of stuffed animals she has...
0: It's mildly horrifying. (laughs)
1: Yep. So anyways, one day, as we kind of are alluding to, Kong attacked his girlfriend, Pauline. Um, Acting fast, Jay takes his hammer from his tool belt and defends Pauline, eventually scaring Kong away. Um, And despite his heroism, because Kong escaped, um, he was causing a lot of panic, and it really hurt Jay's reputation once it got out that he... uh, You know, it it was his pet that he brought here and all that stuff. So um, he eventually lost his job because he couldn't get any work. I mean, he was a carpenter. So it's kind of a word of mouth thing. Um, And Um, because of the event, Pauline would eventually tell him that it was too traumatic and she needed a break. So with a lack of job, lack of girlfriend, he was pretty down on his luck. And eventually he couldn't pay his landlord, Mr. Seagal. And so Mr. Seagal came out to kick him out. Jay would then move in with his twin brother not long afterwards and start a plumbing business. As business tanked due to Jay's reputation, they came to the scheme that they needed to adopt a new name. Jokingly, they credited their reunion to Mr. Seagal, and Jay decided that he would actually take Mr. Seagal's first name for their business. Thus, the company known as the Mario Brothers was born. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you enjoyed my fictional story. (laughs) So, uh, my topic is... (laughs) Did you just get it?
0: I just got that. <laughs> oh no!
1: <laughs> so my topic is on July Fourteenth, nineteen eighty-three. Mario Brothers was released as an arcade cabinet game.
0: You're the worst. <laughs> I was very invested inve- in what happened.
1: Yep. Jeez.
0: Right. So
1: there's quite a few full truths and half truths to the fake story that I just read you. J-Man was really Jump Man, which was the original name that would be for the sprite that would become known as Mario. Um, Mario did have a pet named Kong, specifically Donkey Kong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsies.
1: Yep. And he did have a girlfriend named Pauline who was attacked by Donkey Kong. Um, all three of them made their first appearance two years prior. Hence why I said our, our carpenter sits alone just after a short uh, uh-huh. event that conspired a few short years ago. <laughs> um, so his first appearance uh, were... Uh, sorry. All three of them, their first appearance was in the game Donkey Kong. Um, in Donkey Kong, Mario was a carpenter... And the goal of the game was to use your hammer and other power-ups to break and avoid barrels that Donkey Kong was throwing at you from atop a construction site where he was holding, holding Pauline hostage. Um, Donkey Kong was presumed to be based on... Uh, oh, Donkey Kong was actually presumed to be based on the Universal Pictures King Kong. And, I can see
0: that. <laughs> and Universal
1: actually sued Nintendo over oh. trademark infringement because of it. <laughs> but Nintendo won.
0: Oh, wait! <laughs>
1: yep, so N- Nintendo won. Um, so that's why Donkey Kong got more popular, and as Donkey Kong got more popular, everyone wanted to play more games as the red little Jumpman. (laughs) Um, Mr. Seagal was a real landlord, not of Mario's apartment, but of Nintendo of America headquarters, and Nintendo of America was was late on rent, which caused Mario Seagal to come knocking for money, which was the catalyst of renaming Jumpman to Mario.
0: (laughs) Oh! I feel really bad for that landlord now. Yep. Being like... All I did was want my rent on time, and these idiots named a character after me.
1: Yep. So, um, actually, one thing that Mr. Seagal was quoted as saying was, um, there was some interview, it was only one interview that he ever accepted based on the Nintendo rumors of him being named, or Mario being named after him, and the only thing he said in response to it was, I'm still waiting for the royalty checks.
0: (laughs) I don't think he's ever gonna get them.
1: Nope, um, Mr. Sewall did pass away um, oh. recently, but I looked. I looked at some of his stuff too, and I guess he was um, a very prominent landlord. Like he owned a lot of buildings. Okay, so um, he probably
0: was. He was probably not down on his luck. <laughs> right.
1: So he was not down on his luck. He also donated a lot. I think is what I saw. So oh, that's there's nice. only three things on his Wikipedia page, which oh. is uh, <laughs> he was a prominent landlord. He was the inspiration for Mario. And that he donated a lot to, I forget which thing, but he he did donate a lot.
0: That's nice. Yeah.
1: Um, so Pauline, also known as Daniela Pauline Verducci, um, did leave Mario because, of, because according to her in the newer game Super Mario Odyssey, um, the event was traumatic to her and that is why she left him. Yeah. Um, and in <laughs> Super Mario Odyssey, she is actually now Mayor, Mayor Pauline of New Donk City. New Donk? New Donk City. I thought that was a really crazy name.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: a, it's it's,
0: that's it's not a winner. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I mean, it's like kind of also named after Donkey Kong. Yeah, <laughs> like, a little bit. Um.
0: What? A, oh, no, I was gonna say, well, maybe it's Dunkaroos, but that's not quite the same either. Oh,
1: New Donk City.
0: I'm gonna pretend it's Dunkaroos.
1: They also, um, I noticed when I was reading some stuff that they call citizens of New Donk City New Donkers.
0: Oh no. <laughs>
1: I've not played Mario Odyssey, oh, God. <laughs> but it sounds like it's a wild ride.
0: Yeah. Fine You know what? We might have to play it now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, Mario and Luigi are twins, and Luigi's really? first... Really? Ape- yes. Okay. Yeah, they're fraternal twins. Oh, but okay. According to Nintendo. Um, <laughs> Luigi's first appearance was just being a color swap of Mario, Oops. and supposedly it was named after a pizza joint in Washington State that was called Mario and Luigi.
0: Interesting. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so
1: they... Um, Miyamoto, uh, I guess, was going, or maybe not Miyamoto, because he's, he's probably someone from Nintendo America headquarters, probably. was going by um, a pizza joint after they had already decided to name Jumpman Mario, and saw that it was called Mario and Luigi's, and mm-hmm. they decided that that was what they wanted to do. Fair enough. Yep. So another fun fact about what sealed the name, uh, sealed the deal for the name Luigi, in Japanese, Ruiji means similar. And Nintendo found this really funny, since Luigi was a multiplayer vessel for the same code as Mario. (laughs) So his name in Japanese literally just means similar.
0: No, poor (laughs) Luigi. Yep. (laughs) He's like the saddest Mario character. Yeah. (laughs) He does not have a fun time of it most of the time. He's always second best to Mario. Luigi. And he's like made fun of because he looks like... He's just the sadder version of Mario.
1: So in, um, this actually isn't in my notes, but I remember reading it. It was in 2013, Nintendo decided that they wanted to celebrate Luigi more. And they released, I think it was like six or seven Luigi-centric games.
0: Uh, I don't remember that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like they have like Luigi's Mansion, which is like when he does like the okay. ghost busting thing. Yeah, okay, I think there, I
0: remember that.
1: There was an older game called uh, Where'd Mario Go or something like that. Does he you, have to
0: save Mario? Where
1: Luigi has to save Mario, and they remade <laughs> that it. in 2013.
0: I love it. <laughs> or re-released it. I don't know if they remade
1: it. Um, and then slowly, Luigi has become more different from Mario. Like he's taller, skinnier, mm-hmm. and, like stuff like that. Where originally they were identical they were they were copies like the the art on the same
0: code just different color
1: yeah so like the art on the different cabinets for like the old mario games was just a green uh, a green mario and a red mario and um they did point to them and say mario and luigi but they they were the same um so anyways back to the game mario mario bros was made for arcade and its cabinet had oh there's there it is its cabinet had a picture of mario sitting on the classic green warp pipe and Luigi next to the pipe getting frustrated with a game enemy called a fighter fly. Um, And then there were two other enemies coming out of the pipe. The game was simple. It was either a single or co-op game where one person controlled Mario or Luigi and uh, defending the sewers from four different enemy types. There was the sidestepper, which was a crab, a fighter fly, which, as you guessed, was a fly, um, (coughs) and slip ice, one word which was just coded on different platforms that you could traverse, so it made you slip around, so you had to <laughs> jump and break the ice. to, oh,
0: okay. So that
1: you weren't slipping while you were trying to um, get Defend rid of the other the enemies. Sewers. Defend the sewers, because you're a plumber now.
0: Oh, boy. <laughs>
1: um, and where is it? Um, and then there was also the last one was a shell creeper, which later became the basis for the series' major enemies, the Koopa, which are the little turtle guys.
0: Oh, yeah, okay.
1: Yep. So, um, the objective was to clear all the enemies out of a level by hitting the floor underneath them, then touching the flipped over enemy to remove them from the screen. All enemies were, when all enemies were cleared, then a player could move on to the next level. Well, it's not really easy to find out exactly how many of these cabinets were sold, um, they later remade, um, different, they they remade for different household consoles, uh, a lot of them. There was, mm-hmm. like, a really big, it, it's interesting, it, around the same time this released, there was something called the Great American Video Game Crash. And the reason it was a crash was because there were so many consoles being made. Oh. So this, this game got ported over to, like, 15 different consoles, almost none of which still exist. Because Jeez. people were making <clears throat> video game consoles so, so much. in.
0: Wow. You know, yeah. Okay. Or
1: even just, like, emulators for computers and stuff like that. There was just so many different systems that you could play games on that it actually caused, like, a... A recession of games uh. um so we don't know exactly how much was sold but from what we know from the remakes and the different consoles um that it's a, estimated that 1.6 million copies have been sold of that game wow which is a which is almost a record for like a singular game especially in that time it definitely smashed a record wow There's, that's
0: impressive yeah
1: um So now if we count the total, now, today, counting the total number of Mario games sold would be, uh, would be pretty, is pretty difficult because there's over 200 unique games featuring Mario since his release.
0: Holy crap. Yeah. That's a lot of Mario. Yeah.
1: 200 unique games. Yikes. Um. Two two of these games featuring Mario are in the top ten most sold games of all time. These are Mario Kart Wii.
0: Yep, that which, sounds about right.
1: Which I thought was kind of interesting because uh, the Wii in general is one of the lower rated consoles that the, <laughs> that Nintendo's put out. Hmm. Uh, but Super Mario Kart Wii was one of the most sold games ever. And then the older Super Mario Brothers for the Nintendo Entertainment System comes in at a comes in hot at forty million copies sold.
0: Wow, yeah, that's a lot.
1: Yeah. Um. A quick aside: looking at the most sold games of all time, because it's the the top ten. Four of the four of the ten games are Nintendo properties. Wow. So the other ones are Wii, the other Wii Sports games, and the original four Pokemon games: Red, Blue, Yellow, and Green.
0: That sounds right. Yep.
1: <laughs> Uh, another interesting tidbit I learned about Mario Brothers was that the game was decide um, the game is what decided his profession, not the other way around. The oh, creators yeah. Miyamoto and uh, Yokoi put the pipes into the game because when they looked at the pipes around, uh, they, they like looked around Japan, and there's a lot of pipes that are kind of just like around Japan, and they're like, "Oh, this would be easy to funnel in enemies." Um, and the I was looking at it because um, I'm like pipes? Like, why do they just choose, like, pipes to be laying around? Like, are there really that many pipes just laying around Japan? Um, another thing that they cited was that um, Miyamoto was saying that they get the pipes from manga or manga, um, they're a common background item. And I'm like, okay, so for some reason, pipes are were really common in Japan. Yeah. It turns out that kids' playgrounds frequently had these pipes stacked everywhere, um, because they, it was post-World War II, they decided, Japan decided it wanted to try and modernize itself, and one of the first ways it started doing that was by upgrading its, um, its like, sewer systems. Mm. So they had all of these pipes that, that were called doken um, around so that they could start laying them out, but they took a long time to do it, so there were all these big, empty okay. lots just that just kinda. were stacked with pipes and all the kids would go into those oh. empty lots and play inside the pipes, because they were just really big sewer pipes.
0: I 100% would have done that as a child.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 100%, yep.
0: So, these
1: these pipes end up becoming such a part of Japanese culture, like, because all the kids are playing in them, um, that they get put into a lot of uh, manga, they put in a lot of, like, anime, they get put in, they got put into games frequently. Oh. And the, the image of Kids playing in um, in tubes is just so pervasive over there that Miyamoto was even saying that as he would like walk home from from work, he would just see pipes and go, wouldn't it be fun to go in there? (laughs) So it's just a pervasive thing, even because he he was older back then. Yeah. So he, he wasn't a kid, but he saw kids doing and was like, wouldn't that be fun? So that was a, a lot of the decision-making that went into putting pipes into the Mario game.
0: Oh, that's um, really cool. And
1: that's why Mario goes into the warp pipes and yeah. why enemies come out of warp pipes. Like, just because Bayamoto was just enthralled by the fact that kids loved playing in these pipes. And the pipes did actually look like the warp pipes in the game. Oh, really? Like the, the way that Japan was making all of their sewer pipes with the, the big um, flange on one side and then just straight pipe.
0: Oh, um, okay. They
1: weren't green, though. And when Miyamoto mm. was asked about why he chose to make them green, he said that he wanted his games to be colorful, green wasn't used frequently, and green looked really good in two-tone and tape color.
0: Fair Because they
1: didn't have many colors to right, work yeah. with. yeah.
0: Yeah, you're kind of limited. Yep. At that point. Nope. That's yeah. pretty cool. and I ended
1: up looking up what the specific manga was that uh, Miyamoto was inspired by, and it was called Doraemon, which ended up being one of the most influential like manga of all time for kids. Oh wow! Um, it's a manga about a small robotic cat that went on adventures and played with young kids in an abandoned park.
0: one we'll just perked up real hard at the word cat, and is now Groaning? groaning. What you
1: doing there, puppy?
0: He doesn't know.
1: He does not know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy!
0: Oh, poor puppy.
1: <clears throat> so now, um, you—I e- was just more looking at the pipes. Uh, e- even now, they actually make these children's playgrounds in Japan intentionally with these doken pipes nice. because it's just such a part of their culture. <laughs> but anyways, that's that's the stuff that I looked out about the Mario Brothers.
0: Nice. I definitely don't think I ever realized he started as a carpenter.
1: Yes. Yep. So he was a carpenter on a construction site.
0: That's really cool.
1: In in Donkey Kong, you had to, um, the, the way that you played Donkey Kong was Donkey Kong steal Pauline, Mm -hmm. who was originally just known as Lady. Oh,
0: well, that's sad. Um,
1: and he would, um, he would go, he would steal her, go up four levels of construction site, and then he would stomp his feet, kind of like Wreck-It Ralph. And
0: things would fall, And things would fall.
1: And then he would start throwing barrels at you, and you would have to avoid them and get up to Pauline. And every time you get up to Pauline, Donkey Kong would grab her and go up some more levels.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so, nice. Yep. And the uh, the last level of, or the last story level of Donkey Kong, what you had to do was you had to break rivets underneath um, underneath this Donkey Kong really? scaffolding. Bilbo, stop, buddy.
0: Bilbo, you're supposed to be our silent third podcaster.
1: Yeah, silent host.
0: Bilbo, buddy, can you lay down? Good thing we're almost done because he's getting very he's getting antsy. Antsy, yeah. Hi, baby.
1: Um, what what was I saying? Oh, the the other there was another thing that I mentioned that uh. Actually, I, I didn't end up mentioning. It. I took it out. But, Don- <laughs> but Donkey Kong is was named Donkey Kong because Japanese thought that the word donkey meant silly or stubborn, <laughs> um, and Miyamoto really wanted Donkey Kong to be pictured as a stupid ape. Fair <laughs> so enough. They, they literally named him Stupid Monkey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> yep. Okay,
1: okay, so that's going to be our show. Um, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can find us on Patreon at Halfwit Pod. And you can send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com. You can listen and share our, our show around by going to halfwit-history.com. Um, that has links to all of our stuff on Google and Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and the RSS feed.
0: All those good things.
1: All the things. <laughs> um, it even has players on it, so if people are, you know, just listening at work, you can just play it right from that website.
0: Yeah, and if anyone wants to go in and leave a review, we'd also greatly appreciate that, too.
1: Yeah, reviews would be cool. Yeah,
0: that'd be awesome. Yeah.
1: Okay, so what do we got? Oh, and um, thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find him on Spotify. He's a cool guy. Yeah. So what do you got for a fun fact?
0: Oh, well, I have <clears> a <throat> Well, you use that. Um, So I have one from 1993. Okay. Um, Do you have one that Oh, I have earlier. Do you want to go first? Sure. Um, July 13th of
1: 1923, the Hollywood sign is officially dedicated in the hills above Hollywood. Um, It originally read Hollywood Land, but the last four letters are dropped after renovations in 1949.
0: Yes. I actually had that also. Okay, can I have... To. sure i'll do the second one so okay then. perfect sorry i could not okay so i do have an earlier one that i just looked at okay so on july eleventh, eighteen 1804 um outraged over disparaging remarks that alexander hamilton had allegedly made at a dinner party vice president aaron burr challenged his longtime rival to a duel
1: and we know how that worked
0: and on this day in 1804, he fatally shot Hamilton in Weehawken, New Jersey. Yep. Hamilton then died the next day. Yep. Fun fact that probably at this point most people know, but Hamilton's son also died in a duel at the same place. Yeah. Quack, blah. Alexander Hamilton. Okay.
1: Okay, so my other one is on <laughs> July 12th of 1979, Disco Demolition Night happens at Comiskey Park. Uh, That's a baseball park for people who don't know. Uh, fans go wild destroying disco records and cause the White Sox to forfeit their (laughs) second game of a doubleheader to the Detroit Tigers because it got too rowdy.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Whoopsies.
1: (laughs) Everyone keeps saying disco is dead, but I still hear it. (laughs)
0: Uh, apparently. Unrelated to disco, but potentially. Um, in, on July 9th, 1993... British DNA tests confirmed that the bodies dug up in 1991 are that of the Tsar Nicholas II, his wife, and three of their five children. Oh. Um, they were killed in 1918 during the aftermath of the Russian Revolution, um, The and the bodies of his other two children weren't found until 2007. They yeah. weren't all buried in the same place. Yeah. And there is a, a lot of discussion about whether or not uh, Anastasia was buried with her brother or with the family there's a lot of like dispute as to whether like which group she was killed with essentially oh because on her and her sister I think it's Marie Maria we're very
1: similar'
0: a rat like similar like only a couple like a year or two apart yeah and at this point that you can like cart like dating of bones isn't um like you can estimate how, like an age range usually but it's not um it's not always like Oh, this person was 20. Right. Or whatever. So she was, I think, 18 and her sister was 20. And they, you know, the age range is like somewhere between like 18 and like 21 or something like that. So there's dispute, or there has been dispute, whether or not she, which one was which, which is one of the things that like continued to fuel the idea that maybe Anastasia escaped. Right. Was that they are 93 and they only found three of the children. Very nice.
1: interesting. Kylie ending on a mystery like normal.
0: I know. Oh, well, You know what? It's good. Also, Anastasia was possibly my favorite children's movie ever. <laughs> Rasputin scared the crap out of me, uh, but he had like the, uh, not that one, he had like the best song in that animated not Disney movie. <laughs> right. Not Disney, Remember, guys. not, Dis- not well, Disney. Well, now Disney. Now Disney. Now Disney. Now Disney owns it, but it didn't then. Yep. Just like the Swan Princess. I always forget that the Swan Princess isn't a Disney movie. It's like, the company that made it no longer exists.
1: (laughs) We are definitely gonna have to talk about Don Bluth at some time because Don Bluth is one of my favorite (laughs) animators ever.
0: Yes, that's a good one.
1: Anyways, that's our show. We had fun recording it. Hope you had fun listening.
0: Bye. Bye nice me
1: Even if we